Alright, Psalm 49 this morning as we look at this 49th Psalm, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 15. Uh, our primary emphasis will be on verse number 8 and verse number 15 as we see uh, what God has for us here this morning. And so as we look here, uh, we've just got a few announcements today. Usually we save those for the end, but don't forget the offering table in the back. But uh, And then the teen fundraiser. Today is the last opportunity uh, to help the teens with their camp fundraiser. And so if you'd like to take part in that, please do that uh, either this morning or in the service tonight. Uh, also this coming Saturday, there will be an outreach effort at 10 o'clock if you'd like to be a part of that. Uh, certainly your help could be used in going out canvassing and reaching the community with the gospel. Uh, and then also on Sunday night, June the 6th, we'll have a brief financial meeting just to give a report uh, of where we are as a church through the first quarter this year. And so we'll do that on two weeks from this evening. And so I hope if you're interested in that, you'll make a note of that. Uh, it shouldn't be a very long meeting at all. And uh, there's not a lot of other things to discuss, but just uh, to give a report on things and things are well, God has blessed. And so we're grateful uh, for all that God is doing in and through us and, and with us and just taking care of his church. And so it's a blessing. And so thank you for your faithfulness to give and to be faithful as God uh, has led. Psalm 49 and verse number one. Hear this, all ye people. Give ear, all ye inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak of wisdom, and the meditation of my heart shall be of understanding. I will incline mine ear to a parable. I will open my dark saying upon the harp. Wherefore should I fear in the days of evil, when the iniquity of my heels shall compass me about? That they trust in their, they that trust in their wealth and that boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their soul is precious and it ceaseth forever. That he should still live forever and not see corruption. For he that, uh, for he seeth that wise men die, likewise the fool and the brutish person perish and leave their wealth to others. Their inward thought is that their houses shall continue forever and their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. Nevertheless, man being in honor abideth not. He is like the beast that perish. This their way is their folly. Yet their posterity approve their sayings, Selah. Like sheep they are laid down in the grave. Death shall feed on them. And the upright shall have dominion over them in the morning. And their beauty shall consume in the grave from their dwelling. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave. For he shall receive me, Selah. As we look here this morning, I just want to talk about this thought this morning from verse number 8 in particular. For the redemption of their soul is precious and it ceaseth forever and to bring a message entitled Precious Redemption. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for the day that you've given. What a wonderful thing it is that we can come together with your people, that we can lift up our voices in worship and song, that we can be encouraged uh, by one another in our presence. And Lord, that we can be comforted, Holy Spirit, by you, that we can be led and guided by you as well. Lord, what a wonderful truth it is to know that when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, that we are ransomed, we are redeemed, uh, and what we have is a very precious gift from God. 
May we not waste it. May we not squander it. May we not take it for granted. Lord, but may we live it in such a way that we bring honor and glory uh, by you or to you as you live through us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we look here, the psalmist is sounding a warning. He's uh, talking to Israel and they've been in a time where they understand by the law that there are offerings that they are to bring to make redemption. There's also a sacrifice that has to be made to bring atonement every year. They understood that this was to be done until the promised Messiah was given. Uh, and it is a picture of all that Jesus was going to do for them and has done for us. Uh, and so when we look at this context, they, they come to a place where uh, specific things were to be given for specific things. And, and sometimes it was a, a amount of money. Sometimes it was a specific sacrifice. It depended on what it was and it depended on what it was for. Uh, and so, but it was uh, this system that all pointed to the cross. And so, but you have here those that are wealthy that they, they want to just buy. Uh, they have the means, they have the wealth, and, and the psalmist is saying they, they can't pay for anybody. Uh, they can't even pay for themselves. It doesn't matter how much we accumulate. It doesn't matter how much notoriety we have, how much fame we have, how much money we have, how many houses we have, how many acres we own. None of that when it comes time to leave this life and to move on to the next matter. It talks about how they've laid up this treasure and how they've named their lands after themselves so that it can be passed down. But ultimately, when they die, they're going into a grave and in that grave, their flesh will be consumed just like an animal's flesh that's buried would be consumed and will go back to the dust from which God has brought us forth from. And so... He's laying all this out here and saying that, listen, verse 14, like the sheep that are laid in the grave, death shall feed on them and the upright shall have dominion over them in the morning. It doesn't mean that, uh, the, that in the morning, you, you, I died today and then tomorrow someone's going to come back and take over what I was doing. Certainly that would happen, but that's not the inference here. This is talking about the big picture. This is the grand scheme of, uh, of all that is when, uh, when those that die without Christ are in the grave. There's no hope for them. It's all over. Those uh, that walk with God, those that know Jesus Christ as their Savior in the morning, whenever, uh, whenever the sun comes up in the morning, when Jesus is on his throne, when, uh, when all of it is brought to its culmination and sin is erased and the earth is remade and heaven, the new heaven descends, all of that takes place, then the righteous will still be there. And so we're righteous not because of what we do, but because of, uh, because of who we're in. And so we're righteous because we stand in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's sounding an alarm. Don't put your trust in the sacrifice that you take to the tabernacle. Put your trust in the one who is going to pay sin's final price for you. Uh, it's all going to be completed. And he says here, for the redemption of their souls. So understanding redemption. Redemption by definition means the repurchase of captured goods or prisoners. So it's that which once belonged to me that has been captured and is being held apart from me. 
It has to do with a prisoner of war or someone in slavery. And we truly this morning belong to Jesus. He created us and we were taken away by our sin and we are held in bondage by our sin waiting to be repurchased by him and reclaimed by him. Uh, and so that redemption, that repurchase, he made us at creation and he bought us again at Calvary. Uh, and so he's given himself that we might be re-bought or recaptured. It also means deliverance from bondage, distress, or liability. And so you've got two aspects of redemption as we understand the, the, the definition of the word. The first aspect is to the saving of our soul. It is Jesus Christ who has redeemed us by his blood, my soul, once I put my faith and trust in his finished work on the cross and the resurrection, then when I put that faith and confidence in him and I'm born into his family, then I have been rebought, I have been reclaimed, I have been redeemed. But many Christians still live in bondage. Many of us choose to live under the control and the authority of our sin. Redemption wasn't just about setting our soul free from hell. It was about setting our flesh free from sin. And when we come and we understand what God has made available to us, he's saying that I have delivered your soul from hell, but I have delivered your flesh from bondage if you choose to stay free. Sometimes we like to go back. Sometimes it's easier to go back. Sometimes the crowd leads us back. But we end up needing to be redeemed. The redemption of my soul only happens one time. The redeeming of my walk with God happens every time that I slip off and need to be brought back into favor with God. And so he never tires. Uh, he, never, he never lacks mercy to forgive us. He also says here that the redemption of their soul is precious. The word precious means of a great price. Or to be highly valued, to be of great value or worth. Now truly, there's a lot of value sometimes in property. It's hard for me to relate to uh, those that have a family home uh, that's been passed or family lands that have been passed from generation to generation. I, I don't relate to that. I, uh, my wife and I have lived in the home that we bought uh, five years ago, after when we when after we had been here for a little while, and the Lord allowed us to purchase a home, uh, we've been in it for a little over five years now, and so that in 32 years of marriage, and in 18 years of life prior to that, is getting really close to the longest that I've ever lived in any one structure in my lifetime. Uh, and so it is, it is maybe one other structure that was a double wide trailer in two different locations that I have uh, lived in in my entire life. So it's hard for me to relate to those that have uh, family lands and things that are passed down. I, but I understand that there's value in that. I understand that, that it has a lot of worth. Uh, I, I get that. But for me... It's things that really would have no value to you that are precious to me. For example, when you go into my office to the left, my office here at the church. When you go into my office here at the church on the left, there's a cabinet and it's got several things in it. 
All of those things mean something to me or they wouldn't be in the cabinet. Some of them mean more than others. One of my uh, prized possessions on that shelf is just a ratty looking little green box that's about maybe two to three inches square. And in it, it has a very tarnished coin. And if you look closely at that coin, it says on that coin, Pearl Harbor Survivor. I had the privilege in Arkansas of pastoring a man by the name of Harry Drumheller. You've never heard of him. He wasn't significant to anybody but his country and his family. He was significant to his country because he was at Hickam Field on December 7th, 1941. And when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, if you understand the layout of Pearl Harbor, the only thing that separates Hickam Field, the Army Airfield, and Pearl Harbor is a chain link fence. It's essentially one property with a fence dividing it from one branch of services territory to the other. And when the Japanese came in, uh, he was there. I, I had the privilege of being his pastor for a few years, and I had the honor of, of preaching his funeral. And whenever he, at the end of his funeral, I was given that coin by the family. And so it's, it's something that's very special to me. It's something that means a lot to me. Uh, whenever you walk into my home, on the right-hand side on the wall, if just after the door out to the garage, uh, there is a large picture. It's just an ink drawing. Uh, it wouldn't mean a thing to you. But in that, uh, it was drawn in 1969. It was drawn by a 17-year-old uncle uh, who would only live about three or four more years. And so he uh, drowned when he was just before his 21st birthday. And so uh, it's something that my Aunt Rita had in her home for all of those years since. And I would just kind of casually drop a hint once in a while. Uh, whenever, whenever you're gone, whenever the Lord calls you home... I would really love to have that. So when we bought our home, she gifted that to me early. Uh, and so it hangs there in our home. When Harvey came and the water rose from nothing to several feet over in, in the course of a day, the, probably the thing that I was the most concerned about in protecting, because if the water came up again the next day, as much as it did that day, that picture would have been underwater. I was looking for some place high to get that, to try to do all that I could to preserve it. Why? Because it can never be replicated. It can't be recreated. He's not here to draw another one if something were to happen to it. Uh, and it's very precious to me. Uh, I looked at it and I didn't realize this as a child growing up, but it's actually a picture of my great-grandfather's home out in the middle of nowhere uh, whenever that uncle would go there as a boy. And so it has significant meaning uh, to those in our family that know it. When I'm gone, uh, I have things that I'm selective about which family member they would be passed to because some of the things mean a lot to one but not as much to another. Uh, and so, but my point this morning is, is that sometimes we try to just place value on things that have monetary value to them. But for me, the most precious things that I have are things that really are worth very much monetarily. My, my mother-in-law's birthday would have been on May the 20th. Uh, and we were kind of calculating, Sonia and I were having coffee, and we were calculating on, on her birthday uh, that she would have been, I think, 107 if she had still been alive. And, uh, and so my wife doesn't have much from them. They didn't have much 
to, to have, honestly. Uh, but she has her wedding band. And on Mother's Day, you'll see uh, my wife will wear a wider gold band that was her mother's wedding band. And she'll never part with it until she's, as long as there's breath in her body, she has possession of that ring. My daughters have already laid claim to uh, the, the, or fight over who's going to get that grandma's ring. And so, Guela's ring. And, uh, and so, it's a precious thing to us. Listen, sometimes we think things that are precious that really are just going to burn up when all is said and done. The reason that those things are precious is because of the personal connection to them. Because they have some, something about them that's sacred. Something about them that causes us to realize that this has great price attached to it or value attached to it, whether it's monetary or not. Those things are personal to us, so they're special. In verse number 8, for the redemption of their soul is precious. It has great value. It is something that uh, cannot be replicated. You understand, Jesus never has to die on the cross again. Jesus never has to, will never have to, uh, or have cause to uh, be resurrected from a grave again. It's all been cared for. To the lost, everlasting life is this jewel that's out there that's of a rare price that few can attain, that you have to strive and uh, be extraordinary to get, or you have to be extremely wealthy to purchase. It's, it's only marked by the value that they can associate with the wealth of this world, but for the saved, those that truly possess it by faith, we realize that there's not anything that we can do in and of ourselves to obtain it. It's been provided to us. And if we'll place our faith and trust in him, he'll grant it to us. It's why he came. First Peter chapter 1 and verses 18 and 19, the Bible tells us, For as much as ye know that ye were redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. We are not redeemed by corruptible things. We are not redeemed by that which man can configure or concoct. We are redeemed by the blood of the Son of God who gave himself for us. When we look at verse number 8 here, applied to the finished work of Christ on the cross, uh, we see that the redemption of the soul shall be precious, shall be high prized, it shall be very dear, but being once wrought, it shall cease forever. It shall never need to be repeated. He's done everything necessary. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 18, he says, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. He's conquered. He set at liberty those that were taken captive. Now I want to just make three observations about this this morning and about the thing, that the, the reason that our redemption is, is precious. Number one, I would say that the redeemed are precious to the Redeemer. If you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have been redeemed. May I say to you this morning that you are precious to Him. He 
gave everything for you. Why should it be precious to me? Because it's precious to him. The redeemed are precious to the redeemer. First, two thoughts about this. Number one, I would say that I am precious to God because I'm his child. There's nothing so precious as our children. We uh, stopped by Brother David and Miss Adriana's yesterday and my grandson Witten, for some reason, decides that he loves his pops. He's just a year old uh, and it's, it's, you know, we, we see him about once a week at least normally. Uh, and so, but he's uh, pretty clingy to mom, especially whenever he was a little bit younger than he is now. Uh, but my other grandchildren, they hung on to my wife for dear life. And I could pry them away if they were distracted, but I pretty much would have to bribe them. Brooklyn occasionally would like me a little bit more, but Wit will lunge out of mom's arms to come to grandpa. And so, uh, and, and he'll, he'll grab me, he'll let Sonia hold them, but when I get them, uh, he'll put his hands on my face and he'll lay his cheek against my cheek and he'll put his head on my shoulder. Listen, there's nothing so precious as the love of our children, our grandchildren. Till they grow up and turn into Andy and then, you know. <laughs> Uh, but when they're young and they're, when they're innocent and when they uh, express non-verbally because a one-year-old can't say much, uh, then it's just there's no question that he may not even understand that he's expressing love, but he will. That's a precious thing. May I say to you that we're precious? Our redemption's precious because we're the child of God. When I give myself and when I trust him as my Savior... I'm precious to him. And no matter how old our children get, they remain precious. Louis Pasteur, the famous uh, vaccine inventor, developer, in the 1800s, had struggled through life and was grief-stricken because three, all, three of his daughters had succumbed to disease. And the loss of those daughters inspired his scientific research and work in the developing of penicillin and vaccines. He had one son. And in 1870, whenever the French decided to invade Russia in the Franco-Prussian War, his son was brought into the army. And as they marched on Moscow, Word began to trickle back that things weren't going well. That the war was failing. That their invasion was in fact quickly deteriorating into what could only be described as a disaster. He laboring in his lab could only think of his son. He shut down his laboratory he bundled up, he got his equipment and supplies together, and he set out for the front. As he approached, he could see the remnants of what was once France's great army straggling back toward the French line. Beaten, demoralized, bleeding, he continued on. And as he got close to the front, he began to see tattered bodies. He began to see more severely wounded men. Men suffering from gangrenous wounds. Men emotionally and psychologically broken. 
Men freezing, literally to death, on the sides of the road. He stumbled finally upon an officer from his son's unit, only to learn that of the 1,200 men in his unit, fewer than 300 had survived. He pressed on. Now there were the bodies of dead, shredded horses mingled with their riders, frozen in the fields. In the distance, he saw another group of soldiers coming. They were wrapped up and bundled as much as they could be. He came to one and he saw just a, basically an opening across the eyes and instantly recognized the eyes of his son as his son recognized the weathered face of his father. They embraced and they wept and they went home. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. Why is redemption precious? Because he came to seek for you. He came to search for you. When you were lost, when you were alone, when you were broken, he was not content to stand idly by, but he came searching for you. Many Christians read and interpret the Bible as if they were a policeman. Laying down the law and enforcing it. Many churches operate that way. Many pastors live that way. But the Bible shouldn't be interpreted, read, and lived as a police officer. It should be read and lived as a broken-hearted father. God gave us the law, but our broken-hearted father sent his son to reclaim us to himself. The law had to be upheld, but Jesus paid the penalty. I'm precious to God because I'm his child. Are you his child this morning? Oh, pastor, we're all his children. No, we're not. We're all his creation. But until we put our faith and trust in him, we don't become his child. We're not his child until we're born. And when we put our faith and trust in him and we receive that gift and become born again, then we are truly then in that moment his child. That I'm precious to God because I'm his child, but I'm also precious to God because of what my salvation cost him. It cost him the perfection and the beauty of heaven for a time. It cost him the inconvenience of being saddled with this flesh. It cost him the heartache of betrayal. It cost him the strain of ministry. It cost him the heartbreak of seeing those that were broken. It cost him the power that was necessary to bring the dead to life and to heal blind eyes and to bring, put back together broken lives. It cost him the stripes that were laid on him as he was scourged. It cost him, it cost him the pierced skull from a crown of thorns. It cost him the beating and the mockery of the soldiers. And it cost him the pain of the nails being driven through his hands and feet and the joints of his body being jerked out of place as that cross was dropped into its hole. It cost him the suffering of lifting himself to struggle for breath as he completed his work. 
and it cost him a trip from this life into hell to conquer it and to retrieve the keys and to lead captivity captive. We're precious and salvation is precious because we are his children and because he paid a high price to redeem us. The redeemed are precious to the redeemer. When you feel like you don't have any value, when you feel like you don't have any worth, when you feel like you don't have a reason to live, when you feel as if you're all alone, never forget that you're precious to him, that he's always with you, that he's always there, that he's, pray, that he's paid a high price for you, that he's longing to be in your presence and for you to acknowledge the gift that he's given you and to live like it's precious to you. See, we're precious to him, but we don't always live like he's precious to us. We see this morning, first of all, that the redeemed are precious to the redeemer, but consider also that the redeemer is precious to the redeemed, or should be. Why? He's precious to me because he paid the price. No one else could ransom me. No one else could pay my penalty. No one else could satisfy God's justice. No one else could assuage God's wrath. No one else could make things right between me and my creator. No one else could satisfy the law and the judge. No one else could bring me into the family of God but Jesus. He's precious this morning because he paid the price. He paid it. Charles Spurgeon on his deathbed testified to his friend. My theology now is found in four little words. He said, Jesus died for me. I don't say that that's all that I would preach if I were to be raised up. But it's more than enough for me to die upon. Jesus died for me. What I would say this morning is that he should be precious to me because he paid the price. The more that I understand about the price that Jesus paid, the more precious he becomes. We can have a lot of things in our life, but if maybe they have sentimental value, but they don't have any real monetary value, like some of the things that I mentioned earlier, they're precious because I understand something about them. They're precious because they bring instantly at the sight of them memories. Because they put things instantly into perspective. Because they cause me to reflect upon that which is truly important. I have a lot of things like that. I have some things like that in my office at home. I have things like that in my office here. We have, uh, my wife has some, some things like that from uh, some of her brothers that uh, hang in our home. I'm just saying that they're constant reminders of that which is truly valuable. The value is not in the item. The value is what it, in what it represents. And when I look and I understand this morning that the more that I learn about the price that Jesus paid, the more that I study the crucifixion, the more that I study the resurrection, the more understanding that I have 
biblically of the atonement and the sacrifice that was required and what it accomplished, the more precious it becomes to me. Why? The greater our understanding, the greater its value. He's precious to us because he paid the price. The second thought I would have about the Redeemer being precious to the redeemed is this. He's precious because I cost him everything. I didn't just cost him a little inconvenience. I didn't just cost him for a short period of time. What I cost him, cost him everything for eternity. Do you understand that the only scars that will be in heaven are the scars in Jesus' body? That when he wipes away tears, when he gives us a glorified body, when he makes all things new, what will remain are the piercings in his hands and feet and side. An eternal reminder of what we cost him, of the sacrifice that was made, of the love that was expressed, of the life that was made available to me. In the days of aristocracy in old England, there was a mother who led and lived in that culture and lifestyle. And as they went about their business with their servants and their entertaining and all of the things that went along with that, it was brought to their attention that a fire had started. Everyone began to gather things. Everyone began to get everyone out of the, of the building, the structure. And as they all stood there and they watched the house continually more and more engulfed in flames, they are looking around taking inventory on who's present, making sure that everyone is there. And the mother suddenly re 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 understands that the nanny didn't bring the baby. Her daughter laid in the nursery. Without thinking, she barged back in, made her way through the flames to the nursery on an upper floor, reached into the crib and drew her child out. The flames had engulfed them from behind and there was no way to get back out. She made her way over to the window and found a way to lower the baby down a ways until finally the baby could be dropped into someone's arms and delivered her baby safely from the fire. There was a trellis nearby and she climbed out the window and she latched onto the trellis and she began to make her way down before it gave way and tore up her hands that were already burned. Her hands were burned, her hands were, bones were broken, tendons were torn, and surgeries were performed to try to do as much repair work as could be done. She healed the best she could, she went about her life, she kept her hands always covered. Her daughter grew into adulthood and never really even understood that that had taken place and what it had cost. Her mother kept it hidden. She didn't complain about it. She just endured the pain, hid the scars. Many of the servants in the house that had changed hands over the years never even realized that the lady of the house 
had such horribly disfigured hands. One day she was sitting in her room and when she would go into the privacy of her own room she would be comfortable and uncover her hands and do what she was doing and was always careful if someone knocked at the door to uh, to quickly cover them so that her disfigurement would be hidden and on one particular day her daughter thinking that she was gone just barged into the room and when she barged into the room she saw her mother's hands and her mother immediately trying to cover them and she of course asked what happened mom to your hands and her mother relayed to her the story that I've relayed to you and she began to weep and said I'm sorry that you had to see my ugly disfigured hands and her daughter immediately came to her mother and dropped down on her knees and took her mom's hand one hand in one and one in the other and placed them up on her face and said oh no mother but these these are beautiful hands you have wonderfully beautiful hands the hands that saved me the hands that brought me forth to life May I say to you this morning that he's precious to us because he cost us everything. Because his beautiful hands will forever bear those scars. Because he'll always demonstrate to us his great love with his presence and his power. The third thing that I would say finally this morning is this, that not only do the redeemed precious to the redeemer, and not only should the Redeemer be precious to the redeemed, but the results of that redemption are precious. The results of what God has done for us in redemption are amazing. I don't know of a better story, and I realize that from time to time I will give a, a version or a, a, a clip of this story verbally about John Newton. John Newton, if you've been in church for a long time, you understand fully who he is. It's really hard to capture what he was in just a few words. We know John Newton because he was a prolific hymn writer. The most well-known Amazing Grace. But we fail to remember where John Newton came from. John Newton had a Christian mother. His father was a sailor, a sea captain, who was very vile, very wicked man. He wasn't home much. He was always at sea. And mom did her best to take little John and to train him in the word of God. She made him memorize copious amounts of scripture. She taught him Bible truths and principles. But mom got sick whenever he was just very young still. And she died. And as she went home to be with the Lord, he became increasingly in the care of his father and those that he would, father would leave him with when he went to sea. That influence and the bitterness that ensued as to the loss of his mother caused him to be bitter even as a young man. And as a young boy one day as a, in his early teen years walking down the streets, he was caught by the, the fact that there was 
some bodies approaching him quickly from behind and some sailors from the nearby harbor had run up behind him and they grabbed him and they picked him up and they took him to the ship. That's the way that you got put into the Navy in Old England. There weren't professional recruiters and recruiting centers in uh, strip malls and uh, at, at the local house of government. You got what they called in those days pressed into service. John Newton was pressed into service. Essentially he was kidnapped as a teenager and he was then in the Navy. They set sail. Sailors by nature are a particularly superstitious lot, especially back in the days of legitimate sailing vessels. And they weren't generally God, godly men, but they were God-fearing men. And there were some things that they just accepted that they would pay a price for in the next life, and they were willing to do that, but you didn't want to tempt fate and God either. And so uh, they did what they did, but they didn't blaspheme and mock God. They didn't disgrace the word of God or misuse it. But when John Newton in his bitterness and in his anger being pressed into service on that British vessel grew increasingly out of control and they would bring him up and they would beat him and that didn't work and he would just get more vile and he took the Bible that he had put in his heart as a child and he used what he knew to twist and to manipulate and to blaspheme God to the point that his shipmates feared that God would sink their ship in reprisal for what John Newton was doing and saying on board. Off the coast of North America, they are, the captain, after trying unsuccessfully to bring him into submission, arranged a trade and traded him to a slaving ship. That slaving ship went off to the coast of Africa. And after a series of events, John Newton became a slave to African slaves on the coast of Africa chained to a hut and a pole outside of another slave's home. He finally managed a way to get word to his father and his father came and bought him and bought his freedom. As the years would pass, John Newton became the captain of a slaving ship. And one day crossing back from North America across the North Atlantic to England, returning home for a time, they were caught in a storm that if you listen to the description of it, sounds like what would have been the remnants of a hurricane, though that's a little far north for it to be. And as he was hanging to the helm, expecting at any moment to be washed overboard, he finally broke, repented, and cried out to God for forgiveness of his sin and received Jesus Christ as his Savior. He denounced his former life. He renewed his acquaintance with the scriptures. He was called by God to become a preacher of the gospel. He pastored a little church in Olney, England for the rest of his life. Pastoring small church or two and writing literally thousands of hymns that are captured, many of them, in the old Olney hymn book. When John Newton's death began to arise and when he was certain that it was coming, wrote his own epitaph. And the two thoughts that I would draw forth about redemption being precious to us is this. Number one, the result of redemption is a transformed life. And if God can take a man as wretched and vile as John Newton 
and transform him to a traitor of slaves and a blasphemer of God into a preacher of the gospel and a writer of hymns, then he can change your life too. He is the God who can change everything. The second thought that I would say is this, that the result of redemption is to glorify God. It changes our lives and our changed lives in turn glorify God. Listen, John Newton understood fully the impact and the importance of his words when he wrote, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We sing it flippantly. We sing it with personal application. We sing it, oh, I'm a wretch, I was bad. Biblically, I was bad, but compared to all my friends, I wasn't that bad. Understand this morning that the man who wrote it could not have been more wicked before Jesus. But few have been more godly since Jesus. He changed him. On John Newton's epitaph, if you were to travel to England today, you would and go to his headstone, you would read these words that he wrote. Sacred to the memory of John Newton, once a libertine and blasphemer and slave of slaves in Africa, but renewed, purified, parted, and appointed to preach that gospel which once he had labored to destroy. May I say this morning that redemption is precious because redemption changes lives. And when we look at what we need in our lives today, we must realize that what we need is redemption. Oh, Pastor, I trust that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior and I've been redeemed and praise God for that. So have I. But I cannot tell you that there's not some times when I need the other half of redemption as well. I need a reviving of my soul. I need a renewal of my spirit. I need to be set free again from the power of this flesh when it's gained its power back to a measure and taking back control of my thinking and my attitude and my and my spirit. I need to be reminded that Jesus Christ gave everything for me and he gave it because I was precious to him. And because he gave so much, he should be precious to me. And when I understand the gift, and when I understand its power, I surrender and submit, allowing it to transform my life so that God be glorified. And when that happens, redemption truly on display is a precious gift from heaven. You're precious to him this morning. Is he precious to you? Oh, pastor, yes. God's done great things for me. He's so precious to me. We sing songs to that effect. But I'm just saying this morning, it's easy for us to say, yes, Jesus is precious to me. But what does my life say? What do my words say? What would the stranger say watching us live? Watching us interact? Watching us go about our business. Would a lost man look at your life and my life and say, Jesus Christ is precious to them? 
Would a lost person look at us and say, there's something, there's a special relationship. You know, it's, it's, we get that. Sometimes you get around someone maybe with their children, especially adult children. It's a rare thing at times to see it. It shouldn't be. It should be the norm. And I praise God when it is. That when everything is right within the family unit, with the family members and with God, where you just get around someone and you, and you just look and you think, man, uh, they, they're, they're, they, they're precious to one another. And you look and you're not saying, well, that, that parent's just tolerating their child or that child, that adult child's just tolerating their parent and that, uh, that they just, that, you know, they're, they're, they come together on holidays and they just hope that they can get through the event without it turning into a big brouhaha. And then you get around people that genuinely enjoy and love to be in one another's company. That are sad to say goodbye. That it's difficult to part ways. And you just look and you say, you know what? They, they're precious to one another. May I say this morning that the sense that any lost person should get when they come around us, when they come around us individually or collectively as a group, should be that their Savior is precious to them. There's no question that we're precious to him. But there is at times, I think in all of our lives, an opportunity for someone to question whether or not he's precious to us. May I say this morning again, pre redemption is a very sacred, special, precious gift from God. Don't latch on to half of it and forget the other half. Don't cling to salvation and then live in the bondage to sin. Put your faith and trust in him and have your soul redeemed and then let him set at liberty your life in this world. Walk in Jesus Christ. Live to the glory of God and demonstrate to everyone who will watch and pay attention that Jesus Christ is sacred and precious and real to me.